This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The appropriate use of antibiotics is important for a variety of reasons. It helps keep our patients safe, helps maintain antibiotic effectiveness when treating bacterial infections, and helps control the cost of patient care. Very few new antibiotics have been introduced in the past few decades. Because of this, as well as the accelerated emergence of antibiotic resistance, it's more important than ever that we practice careful and responsible use of antibiotics. Antibiotic stewardship is the effort to measure and improve how antibiotics are prescribed by clinicians and used by patients. Today's podcast will focus on outpatient antibiotic stewardship And my guests include Dr. Kelsey Jensen and Dr. Daniel Ilgis, both pharmacists at the Mayo Clinic. We'll discuss how antibiotics are often prescribed incorrectly, the barriers we face as clinicians in prescribing antibiotics, and how we can all improve our antibiotic stewardship. So Kelsey and Daniel, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, This is a really important topic. When I first heard we were gonna be discussing this, I thought, well, this is pretty simple. And I was looking at it really one dimensionally in that I assumed that antibiotic stewardship was important because of antibiotic resistance, but there's a lot more to it. So let's start by asking you, what is the goal of antibiotic stewardship? Absolutely, thanks so much for having us and, and for this important first question. The goals of antibiotic stewardship are multifactorial, but the first and foremost is to improve patient outcomes, but also to reduce unintended consequences of antibiotics, such as adverse effects and antibiotic resistance, and to promote cost-effective care. And so one way to think about the goals of antibiotic stewardship is to think about the five Ds of stewardship. And so that's the right drug for the right diagnosis, at the right dose for the right duration. And fifth is de-escalating appropriately. Although I'll note that de-escalation is something that's more prominent in the inpatient setting than it is in the outpatient setting. So how common, or maybe I should say how serious of a problem is inappropriate antibiotic prescribing? So inappropriate prescribing is a common problem and certainly a serious public health threat, especially in the outpatient setting. So of note, 80 to 90% of all antimicrobial consumption occurs in the ambulatory setting. It's estimated that between 30 and 50% of outpatient antibiotic prescribing is inappropriate, which includes suboptimal drug selection and duration of treatment, as well as prescribing where antibiotics are unlikely to provide any benefit at all, such as in viral illnesses. Studies that estimate prescribing appropriateness have noted variability among different care settings with higher rates of inappropriate prescribing in urgent care clinics and emergency departments relative to medical offices. Well, I've done primary care for a little over 20 years, and I know that antibiotic use is a common part of that practice. Do we know approximately what percentage of outpatient clinician visits result in an antibiotic prescription? Yes, we do actually. Roughly 20% of pediatric office visits and 10% of adult office visits do result in an antimicrobial prescription. In 2021, actually, the CDC uh, put together some data that suggested that healthcare providers 
in the United States prescribed 211 million antibiotic prescriptions, which represents 636 antibiotic prescriptions for every 1,000 persons in the United States. And so if we extrapolate some of those estimations of inappropriate prescribing, we can estimate that 30% or roughly 63 million of them could have been potentially suboptimal or in some cases completely unnecessary. What are we as clinicians doing incorrectly when we typically prescribe an antibiotic? There's a number of things that could happen, including prescribing an antibiotic when it's not indicated or alternatively not prescribing an antibiotic when one is indicated. Incorrect selection, dosing, and duration are also possible issues that can arise with antimicrobial prescribing. I'll start with unnecessary antibiotic prescribing, which is very common in both upper respiratory infections as well as asymptomatic bacteria. So for upper respiratory infections, in a recent study published in CID in 2020, antibiotic prescribing practices from 1.16 million urgent care encounters in the Intermountain Healthcare Network were evaluated. And respiratory ICD-10 codes were characterized into diagnostic tiers based on whether they were always indicated, sometimes indicated, or not indicated. So encounters for respiratory diagnoses where antibiotics were sometimes indicated, which can include diagnoses like sinusitis or acute otitis media, resulted in antibiotics in 65% of encounters. Moreover, encounters for respiratory diagnoses where antibiotics were not indicated, including those viral URIs, resulted in antibiotics in 21% of encounters and accounted for 18% of total antibiotic prescribing. Asymptomatic bacteria, or ASB, is another common source of unnecessary prescribing, with approximately 50% of cases being treated inappropriately. We know that ASB is common with reported rates in females, up to 16% in the community and 54% in nursing homes. Additionally, 100% of patients with an indwelling catheter for 30 days or more, regardless of gender, will be colonized with bacteria. And just to explain this further, ASB is really defined as the presence of bacteria in the urine in the absence of signs or symptoms attributable to UTI, regardless of pyuria, and should really be only treated in certain circumstances. For the diagnosis of urinary tract infection, it's really important to consider the symptoms. So for cystitis or lower UTIs, typical symptoms include dysuria, urinary frequency, and urgency. And then for pyelonephritis or those upper UTIs, additional typical symptoms can include fever and flank pain. So urinary tract infections should not be assumed just based on foul smelling or cloudy urine. Outside of pregnancy, prior to urologic procedures, and within two months of kidney transplant, urine cultures really are not indicated for asymptomatic patients. An inappropriate use of urine cultures is seen quite often, actually, including testing when urine is dark, cloudy, or foul-smelling, where patients have pyuria or a positive UA but are still asymptomatic. We're testing for cure in scenarios where it's likely unnecessary in patients that present with weakness or falls or with a UTI history in patients with mental status changes, or sometimes seeing use in pre- or post-operative screening outside of urologic procedures. So that inappropriate utilization of urine cultures really can lead to unnecessary antibiotic prescribing. As a geriatrician, I don't 
do this anymore, but I used to work in nursing homes, skilled nursing care, and we'd have some catheterized patients. And I would frequently get asked to do a urine culture in a catheterized patient just because the urine looks cloudy. You really don't want to do that if the patient is asymptomatic. If for no reason, you get some pretty scary results sometimes, uh, things you don't really want to see. You know, pseudomonas, and uh, there's no good reason to do uh, cultures in those individuals. Yes, represents a pretty significant opportunity for both antibiotic stewardship and diagnostic stewardship. Correct. Switching gears then into not prescribing antibiotics when they actually are indicated, while this is really less common, it can be problematic in the case of sexually transmitted infections or STI, which can include chlamydia, gonorrhea, and herpes simplex virus, which often go underdiagnosed. So in the U.S., it's estimated that one in five patients are currently infected with over half of those being of younger age, 15 to 24 And symptoms of sexually transmitted infections can be mild or even absent, which can impact the patient seeking treatment um, and testing. Lack of diagnostic certainty for the healthcare provider, communication challenges really are around documentation of that sexual inventory, and patients not being consistently educated on ways to prevent reinfection, along with many other factors, can really serve as barriers to appropriate treatment of sexually transmitted infection. So when looking at antimicrobial stewardship through the lens of drug selection, choosing a regimen that carries the lowest risk of adverse effects with the narrowest possible uh, spectrum is ideal. This can be complicated by documented penicillin allergies. So we know that drug allergies are reported in 33% of patients, with penicillin allergies being the most common occurring in 5 to 16% of patients. We know that after 10 years, 80% of patients with immediate hypersensitivity to penicillin will have a negative skin test. And additionally, after formal allergy testing, 95% of patients will have a negative skin test, really highlighting the importance of allergy referrals as a very impactful primary care intervention. In addition to allergy referral, an article written by Blumenthal and colleagues in 2019 described the importance of an allergy assessment and verification. The important facets of an allergy assessment include documenting the reaction type, timing, treatment, how long ago it occurred, and other beta-lactams tolerated prior to and after the reaction. Beta-lactams really are considered the treatment of choice for many common syndromes. However, documented penicillin allergy can lead to use of non-preferred antibiotics that are often less effective and have a less optimal adverse effect profile. And they may also be more expensive and broader in activity. So fluoroquinolones are one such antibiotic class that are often considered second line given significant concerns for adverse effects. These adverse effects have been brought to light in recent years by the FDA and many other sources and can include tendon rupture, aortic aneurysm or dissection, peripheral neuropathy, hypoglycemia, mental health effects, and concern for emerging resistance to these agents. And so because of this, fluoroquinolones really should be reserved for uh, more serious infections with proven susceptibility. And then the last thing that I'll talk about is addressing unnecessarily long durations, which is an important opportunity for antimicrobial stewardship programs. There are many syndromes for which short course therapy has been shown to have equivalent efficacy to longer therapy. 
So in the outpatient setting, this can include, but is certainly not limited to pneumonia, COPD, certain interabdominal infections, cellulitis, and urinary tract infections. In fact, our antibiotic stewardship team here at Mayo Clinic has set our focus for 2023 on reducing inappropriately long durations of therapy for cystitis, where durations can be as short as three to five days with certain regimens for uncomplicated cystitis. This really takes some uh, re-education on uh, us as clinicians. I recall, and as my kids used to say, in the olden days, we commonly would prescribe an antibiotic for a simple UTI for seven days, sometimes even 10 days. And then uh, when some guidelines came out saying, you can use three-day course, that was kind of tough for us because we, you know, for years felt that it had to be much longer than that. Well, I know a common use of an antibiotic is for patients who have really a viral URI. How do we deal with that? Yeah, this is certainly a challenging situation. And frequently there are patient expectations that are, you know, at the forefront of what can be a very difficult decision. What is critical in this particular situation is understanding that the patients want symptomatic relief and that viral URIs are miserable, but emphasizing that antibiotics are not going to provide the symptomatic relief they're looking for is critical, as well as providing a firm diagnosis. You have a viral URI, as well as expectations. So you can expect to be sick for up to three weeks with a lingering cough. And then the last critical component of that is making firm recommendations about symptomatic relief, including some prescriptions, but often it's over-the-counter therapies. So making a recommendation about a regimen for Tylenol, acetaminophen, or a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory for fever, something for cough, and so on. At Mayo Clinic, we provide a non-antibiotic prescription pad that providers can use to check off recommendations for over-the-counter therapies for patients so they can get the symptomatic relief. Yeah. Yeah, I think of the the surest way to get a patient unhappy with us is have them sit in an urgent care center for two hours before they're seen with their viral URI. And then uh, we tell them that an antibiotic is not indicated and uh, they don't leave very happy when they hear that. Well, what are some of the outcomes of inappropriate prescribing of antibiotics? So unnecessary costs is one and can certainly be problematic and can include the direct costs of the antimicrobial prescription as well as indirect costs to the patient, such as time and transportation. Unfortunately, these costs can be amplified in the scenario where patients experience adverse effects from the prescription. Transitioning then into adverse effects, antibiotic-related adverse effects, including hypersensitivity and diarrhea, are common, particularly in children, and really do represent a common reason for seeking care, including emergency department visits. Opportunistic infections can also be problematic. So C. difficile infections can be an unintended consequence of antibiotic use and can be triggered by even a single dose of antibiotics. Certain antibiotics, such as clindamycin, fluoroquinolones, and broad-spectrum beta-lactams, pose a higher risk of C. diff than other antibiotics. For this reason, it's really prudent to consider the spectrum of activity when contemplating various antibiotic regimens and opt for, again, the narrowest spectrum with the shortest possible duration. Lastly, antibiotic resistance. So, of course, resistance is a problem, is increasing, and is a global health threat. 
Unfortunately, resistance is inevitable with continued use of antibiotics. However, we can prevent this by using the narrowest spectrum agent for the shortest duration possible. Prolonged durations, misuse, and overuse can increase selective pressures for resistant organisms. Yeah, and I think just by prescribing antibiotics for reasons that are not appropriate, the patients then get the expectation that that's going to happen. So if they're going to be re-educated, we need to educate our clinicians as well. So if this were a simple problem, we'd have it fixed by now. There are barriers that exist for clinicians in prescribing antibiotics appropriately. Let's go through some of those. Yeah, so there's many barriers that have been identified. So certainly knowledge gaps are a possibility, patient expectations, as we've talked about, as well as time constraints and clinician concerns of decreased patient satisfaction, which uh, have been fairly well described in the literature. Actually, what I hear from providers most is that the patient expectations and the time constraints and patient satisfaction are the most important and impactful above and beyond the knowledge gaps, although that's still an important consideration. As I mentioned earlier, you know, the patient-specific communication strategies are important, including establishing that firm diagnosis, those expectations, and uh, additionally, a follow-up plan, which I didn't mention before, just so that they feel like there's something that they can do if their symptoms are persisting and they have a definitive action to take. Additionally, an emphasis on risk-benefit of antibiotics with the patient can be helpful. There is also a noted value add of prescribing and recommending non-antibiotic medications. So there's data that suggests that antibiotic prescriptions are in fact related to patient satisfaction. This data is out there, but in these studies, this effect is actually ameliorated when the physician provides or recommends a non-antibiotic alternative prescription, as I mentioned, for symptomatic management as well. So I think really a, a critical intervention to overcome some of those patient expectations and satisfaction fears. You know, I think another big issue is the time constraints we have in seeing patients. And it's so much quicker and easier just to prescribe an antibiotic Patient's happy, they're done quickly, but to take the time to explain to the patient why it's not such a good idea really takes time. And then you may be dealing with an unhappy patient and then our patient satisfaction ratings goes down. So I think that's another big barrier that uh, we face as clinicians. So how do we fix this problem? What do we do? So in the ambulatory setting, there's multiple interventions that can substantially improve antimicrobial prescribing. These can include provision of provider education, dissemination of provider level data as compared with their peers, and development and implementation of tools within the electronic medical record to support decision making. We know that practice guidelines are helpful, but are of greater impact when integrated within the workflow as clinical decision support or within order sets or order panels. As one of our interventions here at Mayo Clinic, we've developed several ambulatory order panels, all preceded with easy ID, that are specific to each syndrome and focus on antibiotic prescriptions. These panels were designed with extensive provider input and really serve as a one-stop shop. From a patient education standpoint, COVID-19 really elevated awareness of viral versus bacterial infections for respiratory infections specifically, but we still have a lot more work to do, especially as it pertains to the treatment of urinary tract infection and sexually transmitted infections. 
One key opportunity that remains is improving patient knowledge and expectations, especially regarding the risks and adverse effects that can result from antibiotic use. Additionally, we need to work to continue to enhance provider comfort with managing expectations and cultivate development of those communication strategies for having those difficult conversations where antibiotics are expected but not warranted. So what about the clinician who's in a solo practice or maybe a very small group practice and doesn't have the administrative staff to help put all that stuff together? What can an individual clinician do to improve their antibiotic stewardship? One thing that individual clinicians can do is is follow the four moments of antibiotic decision-making in the outpatient setting, which have been established by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, or AHRQ. And so there are four simple questions to walk through anytime you are thinking about prescribing an antibiotic. And so the first is, does my patient have an infection that requires antibiotics? That can cut off a lot right off the top there. The second is, do I need to order any diagnostic tests? Something that's important when we're thinking about urinary tract infections and sexually transmitted infections. The third is, if antibiotics are indicated, what is the narrowest, safest, and shortest regimen that I can prescribe, trying to minimize the collateral damage? And the last is, does my patient understand what to expect and the follow-up plan? So four simple questions that clinicians can ask themselves to improve their own stewardship. So can we make a difference? Is this achievable? Yes, of course, but it's a team effort. Incremental changes to our individual practices and prescribing habits can make a tremendous difference in the overall picture. It takes all of us, not just one individual, to make a meaningful change. We're all responsible for preserving our valuable resource of antibiotics, and everyone really who provides and prescribes antibiotics should consider themselves an antibiotic steward. Kelsey and Dan, you've given us some really good information and covered the topic quite well. Can you summarize our discussion, maybe give a couple key points on uh, outpatient antibiotic stewardship? Sure, I'll start with the first one. So antibiotic use comes with some inherent risks, not just rewards. So as a result, we really need to carefully consider the risk versus benefit prior to antibiotic prescribing. Additionally, minimizing inappropriate or unnecessary antibiotic use can really mitigate risks of antimicrobial-related adverse effects. My key point would be just for providers to try and follow those four moments of antibiotic decision-making, which are, again, asking if my patient does, in fact, have an infection requiring antibiotics, figuring out the right diagnostics, then choosing the narrowest, safest, and shortest possible regimen, and establishing a firm follow-up plan. We've been discussing... Outpatient Antibiotic Stewardship with pharmacist Dr. Kelsey Jensen and Dr. Daniel Ilgis, both from the Mayo Clinic. Kelsey and Dan, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thanks for having us. You can now listen to over several hundred different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. We are honored to have you as a listener and hope you tune in again next week. Stay well.